I learned a lot about myself. I looked at my Spotify unwrapped. Duncan, yeah. do, you, do you have that? You wouldn't believe you, my Spotify. Do you, have Sp- you have Spotify? Uh, I never check it out. <laughs> they did the year-end unwrapped where they tell you what you actually listen to. Oh, okay. No, it's not so okay. That's not? <laughs> no. I, I thought I was a different person than who I actually am. So that's quite disturbing. Well, at least you were looking at it rather than anybody. Here's my uh, <laughs> top song, my top five songs in 2023 that I listened to: "Flowers" by Miley Cyrus, <laughs> "Kill Bill" by SZA. Okay, I'm cool with that. "Tropic Morning News" by The National, uh, "Calm Down" by Selena Gomez. Yeah, I'm just telling you, this is what it is. You know, you don't have to tell people. I know. Mine is mine is Ke- and "Chemical" by Post Malone. Mine is and then absurd. they get worse. You want to see the rest? Yeah. I can't even say the rest. Fast what? Car. That's on Why? everyone's list. What? That's a good one. Yeah, the Barbie song Hilarious. by Dua Lipa. That's cool, right? <laughs> okay. J. Cole, okay. Uh, All My Harry Life. Harry Styles, okay. Tell me, my, you at least have like, now hey, and then on there, from right? the century. Boys <laughs> a Liar Part 2. Boys a Liar is in my... <laughs> Listen, so here, this is my top five artists. Metallica, Done. Leonard Cohen, yeah. um, Foo Fighters, <laughs> okay. Bach, Okay. And um, someone else, like, very random like okay, that. Because so that's, so that's like three, 320 and 180. And maybe Jethro Tull. <laughs> <laughs> maybe The Doors. Not, not The Strangers. Oh, no, Billy Joel was number All five. Right, I feel better about myself. All right, do I need to put this on now? Yes. So, right. David, you were on with Ben and I right after SVB went down yeah. in March. So I had Sean take a listen and just give us some notes, anything worth bringing back up. You had some good stuff there. So at the time of the filming... Uh, wage growth was slower than inflation for 23 straight months. Yeah. We spoke about that. And you said that the consumer crunch, and you were 100% right, would be pushed off because of the strength in the labor market. Josh right. was dead wrong, per usual. Yeah. Um, we happy, spoke about- happy to, happy to be wrong about that. I asked if we can have a recession with unemployment less than 4%. Uh, and you said yes, but it would be a very, very mild one. Yeah. And we're still in that place. It's kind of kind of wild. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, the, the economy is moving very- very slowly, uh, and or it's begun to move more slowly, and it gets more fragile. It's kind of like the difference when you, you see a 60-year-old walking along the road and you see an 80-year-old walking along the road, you realize they're more fragile. But there's nothing yet that's ready to push this economy to recession. It's not, not quite there yet. You also said, and you were dead right about this, you said that, quote, we don't need a recession to bring inflation down. Absolutely. Holy that, shit. That, Good that, call because that, consensus was that you did. At the time, at the time, that was definitely not, con- that, that was out there. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. that was I a good mean, one. I, I, the thing is, it was so unpopular uh, a year ago or six months ago to say, this is really a transitory episode of inflation. Don't say And that. it was prolonged <laughs> by, uh, by the war in Ukraine. But that's actually exactly what it was. And we started out at 2%. We're going to end up back at 2% probably by the end of next year. David, a lot of people said, though, that we've never been able to cure 9% inflation without a recession. True. They have a very small sample size, but still, um, this is the time that we did it. Like, this is the exception. Well, or maybe not. You know, when we say we cure, I think we give policymakers a whole lot too much credit and blame. The truth is, the economy is capable of doing that itself. Mm. This is not an inflation prone economy. You know, the, the, the most important thing you could have learned about this year is this is not your grandfather's labor market. Okay. And, and if you realize that this is a different labor market from the 1970s. Meaning, meaning, meaning what? It, back in the 1970s, uh, 30% of the workforce was in a union. And uh, we had major strikes all the time to get wage increases. Right now, 10% of the population is in, of the workforce is in a labor union. 
and only 6% of the private sector, and most people are absolutely out there on their own, yeah, they should be asking for a bigger wage increase, but they don't. Right. And, and businesses are able to keep that under control. And that means you don't end up with a price wage spiral. You but end up with just, a but, price wage slinky. But, Prices and wages are both, uh, wage growth are both coming down this year. Ah, slowly. price wage slinky, that's good. But we did have, but we did have like Starbucks and Amazon and things that didn't exist in the 70s. The 70s is like airlines and um, assembly lines, like autos. Yeah. We did have unionization efforts, but you're saying like, they never really crossed over to the point where they caused inflation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a scale different. I mean, so far this year, we've had just over 20 strikes. Mm. And last year, we had 23 major strikes. And these are strikes of more than 1,000 workers. Between 1965 and 1979, there wasn't a single year with less than 200 major strikes. Yeah, it was like, it was like, <laughs> Euro, it was like Europe. In, in 19, like yeah, 1974, was, <laughs> there were 424 major strikes. Right. I mean, it was just, uh, and so, you know, we've just seen a very pale reflection of what we had back then. Right. Okay. So that you think that was a really big difference maker, the composition of of the of the labor force. I, th I think that's part of it. I think yeah. I think another part of it that we don't talk about enough is what inequality does to inflation, because what's what's happened for so many decades now is the rich have got more money and lower and middle income people have not, and. The thing is, the idea is it's supposed to be a circular flow of income. You earn all this money, it's supposed to come around and buy the stuff that you just produced. But so much of this money goes to upper income households that they're putting it all into the stock market they and the bond market, they but they're not it. buying goods and services. And so you don't end up with this huge demand for goods and services. And that, I think, has been a major factor holding down inflation for decades. And I, I think it's reasserting itself. I saw a crazy stat. Speaking of inequality, Bill Gates is getting half a billion dollars in, in uh, dividends this year. Yeah, it's <laughs> in dividends. In dividends? <laughs> Well, one way, one way to think about it is if 10 people walk into a 7-Eleven tonight, the 10th person in the door will have the same income as the first nine people in the door. Okay. And that's just income inequality. And if you look at wealth inequality, way worse. if 30 people walked into a 7-Eleven, the last person in the door has got the same wealth as the first 29 combined. That is an average description of inequality in America. It's pretty extreme. And I'm not trying to make a political point, but it is an important inflation point because that diverts a lot of income and a lot of wealth to buying financial assets as opposed to goods and services. And the only time you sort of changed that in the recent decades was when you had all this pandemic money, which was actually going to lower and middle income people. Yeah, and you lead that they horse spend, to water. They spent it all. That's right. If you, if you, if yeah. you, you know, if it's, you can lead a horse to water, they may not drink. If you feed the horse intravenously water, they'll drink. We led the horse do, to GameStop. Do, do you think that we learned something inst like institutionally where if and when we have some sort of financial crisis and we need to stoke inflation, now we know how to do it. It's direct. It's Pay not checks. low interest rates. That because because that just Absolutely. that's just more bond buying. Exactly. It's it's literally give the money to people who need to spend it. And they absolutely will. I, uh, David, during the next recession, you think that's, wait, what, wait. Oh, that's what's going to no, happen? No, no, that's, we know that, now. What we know is that central banks can fix financial crises, but it takes central governments F through fiscal, policy, fiscal to fix, policy to fix recessions. But did we learn it? Like, do you think that people are like, oh, that really worked? I, I think economists know this, but but whether that filters through to policy. We had a real experiment, though. Like, we yeah. had a real-time, actual experiment. But wait, what happens? Hang on. If, 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 if in the next recession— we send checks out and there's no pandemic because obviously that was part of the inflation. Would the checks have caused inflation the same way? Probably they, they, not. They would have caused some inflation, not, not, as, not as much, but they would have caused inflation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we didn't have a particular supply problem in terms of food, but food prices went through the roof um, because of extra demand. And it was because of more consumption of food. It wasn't because of less supply. But my question to you is, do the politicians say, 
No, last time we did that, we got 9% inflation. We're not doing that again. Or last time we did that, we fixed the recession. Well, we did too much of it. I, I think that's the, well, the answer is we did too much of it. Too we much sim- of it. We yeah. simply doubled the dose. The, 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 the last the med- one was. The medicine was correct. We just gave, gave the economy too much of a dose. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Oh, you, got, you guys want to start the show? Let's do All it. All right, let's do it. Three claps coming in. John, I like, that, I like that sweater. I what is that? Is that like geodesic? What's, that, what's the word to describe that? Yeah. Styling, my man. I love it. Coming to Friends, episode 120. Oh, man. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Red Holtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's episode of The Compound and Friends is brought to you by our friends at Public. Duncan, you know what's so hot right now? What? Cash. It's true. Literally. Hansel hot. Buying treasuries, at least if you do it direct, can be a huge pain in the butt. It's a government website. Not really up to speed with 2023, you know? Heading to 2024. Unbelievable. Public makes it incredibly easy to earn high yield on your cash. There's no minimum hold periods. You can access your cash at any time with the flexibility of a bank account. And right now, T-bills are still yielding 5.4%. Not so bad. But just a reminder, to, to, in order to earn that 5.4%, that's an annualized yield. Okay? It's an annualized yield. And you actually have to hold the to maturity to get that annualized yield. I know it sounds obvious, but I'm... Just want to make sure that everybody understands exactly what I'm talking about here. Go to public.com slash compound to lock in a 5.4% yield on your cash. Episode 120. Guys, this is this is major for Michael and I. We are so excited. We've been geeking out about this all week. I picked out a, a, a suit and tie specifically for today. We have a very special guest with us here uh, in our studio. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist and Head of the Global Market Insight Strategy Team for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Are you as excited as we are? I'm very excited. Uh, I can tell. Uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management has more than $2 trillion in AUM. I want to say more about you. First of all, you've been the Chief Global Strategist for 16 years. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much, yes. Well, is it more? No, it's it, the question is how global. And so it started off being the chief U.S. strategist, but then we got more Fine. global, so okay. I ended up global strategist. But it's a, it's a long time you were in that role. Most people don't last that long. Well, it's, I've got a very good team, and, and I really like, to be honest, the company's been really good to me. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just a nice atmosphere. Uh, Absolutely. Asset management. Absolutely. I have many friends at J.P. Morgan. Uh, 33 years at the bank. What's, what's uh, again, that's a really long tenure in one place. They must treat you... Really, oh, really that's, nicely. That's not quite right. I, I've been maybe 33 years in the industry, but I, I joined J.P. Morgan in 2008. Oh, okay. 33 years in the industry. All right. So you're there a long time, but you're not there yeah. 33 years. Okay. Uh, here's what I want to start with. You do this really great thing, uh, weekly market recap. That's your that's your team. Mm-hmm. How, how many people do you have on your team, research people? We've got, we've got 30 strategists and analysts around the world. Okay. Who does that go to? I mean, I get it, but like, who, who, who does that go to? It goes to thousands of financial advisors and institutional investors uh, here in the United States, but we all, we do something similar in Europe and in Asia. Okay, so these are clients of J.P. Morgan Asset Management 
and you that, guys are. That's right. So it's either people investing or people who are investing on behalf of other big clients. So it's it's usually not just average people investing. It's it's usually those who advise those people. So I want to talk about what you put out uh, during Thanksgiving week. Uh, so I thought this was really apropos of what we're going to talk about today. 60-40 portfolios are up about 12% this year after a really horrendous 2022. Maybe the worst 2020, the worst year for 60-40 portfolios in most of our lifetimes. Yep. Is that fair to say? Okay. Um, path hasn't been smooth, you note. And uh, I think what you said was, and I agree with this, the biggest surprise in the 60-40 uh, was U.S. large cap growth. It's just like if you told most people in January you're going to get 500, you know, we're going to get up to 5% interest rates, overnight rates. Uh, most people wouldn't guess large cap equity, specifically large cap growth equity, would have done what it what it did. So that for me, I think that's like one of the top three stories of the year. What do you think? Well, I think that's right. I mean, there, there's been a lot of excitement around AI, and we've seen a lot of big companies perform very well in terms of generating cash flow. But those higher interest rates ought to have hurt growth stocks more. Yeah. And what I think it tells us is something I think we've known really for the last few years is that there are a lot of pockets of um, sort of euphoria and speculation within markets. I mean, the very fact that Bitcoin isn't valued at 10 cents tells you there's a lot of speculation in markets. Um, and I think there's some of that at work also. So it's I think it's difficult for portfolio managers because they try to figure out, okay, what's this really worth? And yes, this is a great story, but should it be that much more expensive than everything else in the market? But if, if, if ChatGPT had not been released a year ago, uh, would the S&P have done what it did this year? Would another story have come along to give people an excuse to buy? I, I, I think probably would have, to be you honest. You do think so? Yeah, no, I, I do, because I think there's, there's a lot of money that is sitting around looking for a home. And uh, I think there's just a lot of investable assets in the United States and around the world. So unless things are getting you know, demonstrably worse or more uncertain, uh, I think markets tend to go up. And what, what happened this year, the most important thing that happened this year is inflation gradually came down. And that reduction in you know, the fear about inflation in, in 2022 is really what, what killed the markets. As inflation gradually came down, I think that really allowed markets to move up. So maybe we moved up more than we would have because of the AI thing, but we probably still should have had an up year following yes. 2022. Exactly. Okay, I, th I feel like that's, that's reasonable. Uh, what were some of the other big surprises this year off the top of your head? One of them is j just how strong the job market has been all the way to this point. Now, it's not exactly a surprise because we really didn't know what all those job openings meant. We, 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 back in March of last year, we had 12 million job openings. We had never seen anything like this. Yeah. I mean, the highest number we ever got to before the pandemic was about seven and a half million. So what did those 12 million job openings mean? And we thought some like, of them- are they were, even real? Well, that's the thing. We were wondering how many of them were real, but obviously some of them were real because what's happened is even as the economy is, you know, it's, it's, it's grown and then it's and slowed down. But as all of that was going on, we were creating a lot of jobs month after month after month that kept in income going, that kept consumer spending going. Do you think at this point that there has to be some sort of exogenous shock for the labor market to weaken? Like, is it possible that we're still waiting for interest rates to take hold and that eventually they'll filter through and companies will start laying off? Or at this point, can we say, if it hasn't happened, it's been almost two years, it's probably not going to. Like, what is going to cause companies to start laying off employees? 
Well, I think the pressure on certain companies is going to continue to grow. Uh, so this is an expansion that, even though it's you know chronologically it's not that old, it actually is kind of old in terms of its characteristics right now. So we've had the unemployment rate below 4% since December 2021, so basically two years. And when you've got that, it means the economy is going to grow more slowly and it makes it more vulnerable. Now, we know that that this sort of quantum leap up in interest rates, it's hurting a lot of small companies. There are a lot of mom-and-pop businesses that thought they were okay after COVID and actually maybe they're not and they can't afford the inventory. So I think we'll see some, some problems there. We're going to see obviously some problems in commercial real estate. We are seeing some problems. Um, but is it enough on its own to put this economy in recession? No, I don't think so because 68% of the economy is consumer spending and consumers have been rock solid all year and they continue to spend. Now, a lot of people said, when are they going to run out of rope? Not, like not when are close. they going to start like run out of their savings, their COVID era fiscal policy savings, and then start going into increasing credit card debt? Like well, that, that was a big bear case. But they, but they've been doing that yeah. all, all year. Uh, so you've got credit card debt up fifteen percent year over year. And yes, technically there may be some COVID savings, but they're all held by richer individuals at this age. It's uh, the lower middle income households. The, spent, the bottom, it's gone. It's, it's gone, but the, but people are racking up credit card debt. But even so, if you look at total debt service, the amount of your income you're spending on servicing your debt, it is back to where it was before the pandemic, but that is so much lower than it was before the great financial crisis. You guys have this great chart in Guide to the Market where you mm -hmm. show um, uh, debt as a percentage of disposable income. And if you only knew that, you would say, this looks pretty good. Looks that, pretty healthy. That's right. Or debt service. Right. It's not the debt. Right. But, right. but it, And the, the key is that 70% of consumer debt is mortgages. And over 90% of those mortgages are fixed rate mortgages. So as the Fed raised interest rates, you know, people are kind of frozen. They can't sell their house. They can't take out a new mortgage. But they're not actually being hurt in terms of cash flow. And so people have some room to keep spending. And, and I think the most important thing I've learned about American consumers over the years is people don't spend to the limit of prudence. They spend to the limit of credit. And we will keep on pushing that boat out, out and out and out until suddenly you have a crisis. And then the consumers and the banks instantaneously realize, oops, we've all got a problem here. You talk to a back. typical consumer right now, not a typical investor, a typical consumer. They will tell you that they are spending to the extent that they have to just to keep their heads above water because of what prices are. And prices are not going back down. They might stop going up at the same rate. That's what consumers are telling. Look at political polls. That that's what they are telling the media. You don't have to believe it, but like that's how they feel. Well, you, you that, don't that's, see it that way. Well, that's how they feel. But the two parts. You know, okay. when people tell me that consumers are only spending what they need, I say, come to Costco. Well, that's what they say. You know, if, you, if you look at the carts in Costco and the stuff that yeah. people buy, yeah, yeah. It, it 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 changes your mind. We don't all need air fryers. <laughs> we right. don't need enough mustard for a generation. Okay. No, okay. we don't. <laughs> so. But So that's one thing. But uh, but the other issue I think is really important because you're right. People feel very gloomy about the economy. Amazingly so. I mean, if you look at the – you remember the combination of unemployment and inflation? It used to be called the misery index. Yeah. That is better than it's been 80% of the time in the last 50 years. But if you look at the index of consumer sentiment, it's worse than it's been 93% of the time. Because people hate high prices more than anything else, it turns out. They, they've had – no, they've had high – They've had high inflation before. What I, I mean, I think it's it's more, it's it's kind of weirder than that. I mean, what we have is a top quartile economy with a bottom decile attitude. And I think that coming out of COVID, everybody in this country and really around the world is in a funk 
we're getting this social media feed, this cable media feed of, you need to be really angry and really scared. And I think it's doing something to people because there's the relationship that you'd normally see between this economy, which is not that bad. It's do actually think, pretty good. Do you think it's it's because we have two almost octogenarians uh, running for the presidency and people are just sick of it? No. And there's not like a new, younger, more dynamic leader in America? Do you think that's I, part of it? I think the political divide is worse than it's been for many, many years. And it's it's because of the, I think in part because of the way people consume information. I agree. Social uh, media and, and makes everything worse. So I, I have three We've been talking a lot about this, and I have three main reasons why there's a big disconnect. Mm -hmm. I think, first and foremost, it's all of the price increases. People adjust very quickly to their income adjustments, right? My real wages are up. That's great, but I'm used to it. I can't get over the fact that my burrito is now $15. I see it every day, and I can't take it. It's unbelievable. I totally agree with you. That's number one. Um, number two is the social media part of it, undoubtedly. Uh, there was a, an article today. Americans are, quote, doom spending. Here's why that's mm -hmm. a problem. I mean, everything is painted negatively. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is, I think people tasted how sweet it was to be working from home. Yep. And the fact that we have to go back to work, it feels like we're going backwards. And people hate going backwards. And I think those are three really powerful things when you mix them together. You might be overgeneralizing on that third thing. Which part? People I think, going back to work? I think maybe half the people wish they didn't have to go back and half the people are like, thank God my life is back. Well, I think people were happy to go back two days a week. I don't know. I, mean, I think people were happy to go back two days a week. And now people are, now it's three days a week. And now, now people that I know that are going back four days a week, they're looking for another job. But I, I think people have, I think what we've realized, if you think about it, is that we have choices. Companies have choices. Maybe companies are trying to get everybody back to work. But the truth is there are a lot of businesses that can actually be done from home. Uh, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's really, I think the first point you made about how people look at pr the price of something and say, how can you tell me inflation's coming down when do you realize what the price of this is? And yeah, yeah. I try to explain as an economist and a, a financial economist, inflation isn't the level of price. Doesn't resonate. The rate of change of Doesn't price. resonate. But they don't want to hear that. No, I know that. Yeah. But, but having said that, there is a distinct glass half empty way in which we in which we talk about things and we look at things. I mean, if you look at gasoline prices, the average, national average gasoline price, regular unleaded right now is 325. Um, which is way down from a year ago, way down from a few months ago. It's the best known price in America. And yet I still don't see anybody really excited about something. Well, that they're usually, if it was the other way, exactly. you know they'd be pretty So this miserable. goes back to the media's part of it. And they're not, they're not all to blame. But if gasoline was high, it would be nonstop on the cover every day. Gasoline prices have fallen for 60 straight days and you don't hear a peep out of it. Exactly. Remember the egg prices went all the way up and it was... And then yeah. they came all the way back down. I know what it talks because about. Because the media will then say prices are falling dangerously fast. Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Think about the problems for egg farmers. Exactly. Can, <laughs> we, pop, can we pop this chart? Yeah. I love this. Um, not to dunk on people. You're a strategist. You have a job to do. You're trying to understand what's happening today and extrapolate that out 12 months. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do. Boy, think about where we were 12 months ago. Yeah. So the chart that's on the screen is, this is from Bloomberg, and they're showing strategist projected return for the S&P 500 every year going back to 2000. And 2023, coming into 2023, was the only year where strategists as a whole collectively thought the S&P was going to be negative, which was very understandable if you rewind to where we were uh, 12 months that's ago. That's, that's just crazy, though. Like that degree of pessimism. Yeah. We probably should have all looked at that and said, if anything goes right, this market is poised for a big rally. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I certainly didn't contribute to that. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, I, you know, if you're investing in the stock market, do not try and make a guess over the next six months, over a year. You know, just think about, the, think about where we're headed. 
You know, our basic theme for most of the last year has been try to look beyond the cycle. You know, we're still working through the, the waves caused by the pandemic and the, and the war in Ukraine. It's going to take a while to work. But when we get out the other side, we're going to be back to low inflation, slow growth. Yes, low inflation, slow growth. Good margins. That's and 2019. That's a, Most people would take that. It would exactly. It's you know. It's a, that's yeah. that's the odd thing. We've been on this roller coaster. But the thing about a roller coaster is, no matter how scary it is, you actually get off where you got on. And we got on with two percent uh, on at two percent inflation. Most people We're would love to have that. Inflation. Most people would love that back. I agree with you. So they they cited three main reasons why um, this year did not transpire in the way that strategists thought it would. Number one, misjudging consumer behavior. Just constant spending. We saw record Black Friday sales, record mm-hmm. TSA traffic last week. Uh, the post-pandemic labor market, you mentioned that we've been below 4% for 21 straight months or whatever, uh, since December 21. Yeah. And then I think this one is really important, the long-lasting effects of 2021's zero interest rates. So we've been talking about this a lot all year. Why has it taken so long for interest rates to filter through the, to the economy? Well, interest rates primarily impact the housing market. But to your point, a lot of people have mortgage rates locked in from years ago. And then companies were really wise during the pandemic. They gorged on debt. So we've got this chart. This is from RBC mm-hmm. looking at the effective interest rate for S&P 500 companies. And it is still very, very low because 90% of their debt is going is, the wrong way for the Fed. Yeah. 90% of their debt is locked in long-term fixed. And if you look at like net interest uh, expense, it's gone down because companies are earning more in their cash than the debt that they've already locked in. Yeah. But you know, it gets back to we spent a decade with the Federal Reserve putting these super low interest rates in to try to stimulate the economy and not a peep out of it. It was the slowest recovery I've ever seen. And the same thing happened in Europe. The same thing has happened for years in Japan. When are we going to learn that monetary policy does not stimulate the economy? It'll fix a financial crisis. It won't stimulate the economy. I mean, when I think we just give too much credit to these policymakers. It's kind of like you're in this, in this boat on this very on these very rough rapids in a river, and you got this tiny little paddle, and you're paddling away this way, and then you paddle away that way, and you think you're moving the boat, but the river's moving the boat. And I think that that, that the Federal Reserve has overshot both ways without having much impact on the economic goals they're trying to achieve, and they should just stop it. Uh, but it, but equally, you know, I I don't think that what the Federal Reserve has done in tightening would or could really have slowed the economy that much. You're so right. I feel like the economy bailed out the Fed. Because we were go- the Fed was driving 100 miles an hour in 2022 with rates still at zero before March when mm-hmm. they raised them. And then they j- going 100 miles an hour, they jammed on the brakes and put 500 basis points of rate hikes into mm-hmm. the economy. And what impact did they really have? Like you could say that the economy bailed them out. The economy has been great despite their best efforts. Well, here's, they- well, here's a question for you. Let's say the Fed moved more slowly. Let's say they only did 200 basis points worth of rate hikes. A, everybody would have been screaming at them for it. Not enough. But would uh, – C- I wouldn't have. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, CPI over the last 12 months, uh, averaging 3 and change percent, over the last month it's now like 2 percent. Like is that where we would be if they if the Fed only did 200 versus 500 basis points? I don't, I don't think, I don't think it would, the path of inflation would be much different at all. Regardless, really? Regardless of what wow. the Fed did. Because, the, because there's only one way they can do it's it. It's a revelation for no, us. But the, but the, 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 it's, people talk about how the Fed uh, you know, cuts inflation. How is the Fed supposed to cut, cut inflation? Only by cutting aggregate demand. That's the only way they can do it. How do they, they can't do that. But if they didn't, well, we know they didn't because the economy grew. So you can't, you can't say we raised interest rates, it killed inflation, but growth was really strong. No. No, the, the only mechanism by which you could have done it was by slowing growth down. If you didn't slow growth down, then inflation fell, well, not, not because of you. So they didn't slow growth down. No, they didn't slow growth down. And that's uh, because— Huge surprise, well, though. Well, because 
When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, if they raise interest rates a bit and then they say, oh, guess what? We're going to raise them some more. What are you going to do? You're going to borrow money now before, before it gets even worse. Yeah. Um, when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, we've got so many people sitting on cash, they all got a pay increase. Yeah. When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it's supposed to slow down investment spending. But so much of investment spending, things like on AI, it's really not investment spending. It's, it's spending on salaries for R&D. It's, it's not really that interest sensitive. We've got oh, this, that's interesting. They're not necessarily building like a cement plant. Exactly. They're just paying people. Exactly. And so yeah. it's, it's not really affected by long-term interest rates. Over the years, the economy's got so insensitive to interest rates that it's, it's practically flipped on, on, on its head. It's not clear that the, the Fed doesn't actually stimulate the economy by raising interest rates a bit. Now, now what they do... I, they I've been saying that. People have been pissed no, off. No, but you me. were saying it as a joke, sort of, because people. No. You were saying it because of the cash balance. Yo, I said this yeah. to Jeffrey Gunlock on TV. I'm like, think about how many people are sitting with all this cash that's now giving them like a bizarre wealth effect because uh, of the interest on that cash. Uh, absolutely. It's the early 80s again. Uh, absolutely. And then if you look at the other side of the ledger, yes, the people who own these bonds got hurt. Okay, rich people got hurt, but the people holding the mortgages, they're all fixed-rate mortgages. They didn't That's get right. hurt. That's right. Or they have no mortgages because they're rich. Yeah, so it's uh, what we found is that over the years, the, the effect of interest rates in either stimulating or slowing the economy has really withered away to nothing. So it used to work. It, yes, it did. Yes, it did. It, it could have worked in a, in a more... Um, uh, there are a few conditions. One is you've got to have an economy with a huge manufacturing sector, which, with, with, you know, Henry Ford is either building a plant or not. Or so that's really what it's all about. It's about physical investment spending. And then the other thing that's really important is if you have a small open economy where interest rates affect your exchange rate, if you push interest rates up and your currency goes up a lot, your exports could crater, and that could that's have an effect. That's not here. But that's exactly, that's not well, here. One, so other thing, one other thing, though. Shouldn't we then, if, you, if what you're saying is true— should money supply be the new thing we focus on? Does that have a bigger impact than the absolute level of rates? But do you know we contract as well? What, why do we have to, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like an American medicine. I mean, usually we just, we know what we need to do to be healthy, but we always want a drug. So why do we need yeah. monetary policy to fix all these problems? I want drugs right now. <laughs> Same reason why 20 million people are on Ozempic already. It's just, you know, it's six, well, six months, so what is people. Most, most, most things with, to <laughs> do with health. Those are people buying the gallons of mustard that you're, that you're, you're referencing. <laughs> but what That's else does why. the Fed have other than interest rates? Do we need but, to start taxing why vacations? Do they, no, why do, they need to, why do they need to fix it at all? I mean, the, the truth is the, econ ah, go on. the economy is going to, the economy is like your own body. It will tend to heal itself. Every morning, 300 million or 325 million Americans wake up. They want to buy more stuff. They want to work more hours. They want to get ahead. This, when you have a recession, it's because something goes wrong. Something shocks that. But as soon as the shock dissipates, people start trying to get back to normal. The economy will try to get back All to right, normal. So this now, is you could do fiscal policy. Yes, you've got a real problem. Give people some checks, they'll spend them. But monetary policy is not really terribly productive and it just distorts everything in the economy. So if you're right, why can't it be an algorithm? Just the two year. Why can't it just be the two year? That's the, that's the overnight rate. Uh, you, you, you could you could have absolutely you could have an algorithm, or you could just just use common sense. Just try to keep rates at a, say two percent real. So about two percent above the rate of inflation is what you should get when you save. Maybe three percent above inflation if you're going to do some long term investing. But just keep rates at a basic level. Don't mess with the housing market. Don't mess with the the construction industry. Um, you know all these asset prices getting pushed through the roof because of zero interest rates, you're just distorting financial markets. So generally speaking, I think monetary policy should be set to do no harm. Uh, and uh, Well, I like the idea of the Fed just being a, a less 
prominent player in the game. The problem is- Yeah, work on the golf game. But I mean, the, they, but the, problem, but the problem is we have a financial crisis every five years. Most of the time they caused it and then they have to fix it. It's like the, a fireman arsonist. And in my day, when I was growing up, like people were aware of Alan Greenspan, but like it wasn't every single day, 12 of them out there giving speeches. Yeah. Let's go back to when Hollywood, the military, the CIA and Freemasonry decided on the rates <laughs> And Greenspan pretended to have nah. some input, and then it was no, nah, no, 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 no. Let me let me distinguish between two different things. If you've got a financial crisis, yeah, like we did in the Great Financial Crisis, then you need a central bank to step in, and it's very but powerful. Why did we have that crisis? Well, yes, I mean, come but, on. No, but that well, that crisis was in part caused by in part caused by low rates, but it was also caused by unregulated growth in d the derivatives market yeah. and uh, unregulated growth in in in, in mortgages. So. There was a problem of regulation beforehand as a problem of low rates. But I generally agree. They tend to, co you know, they build bubbles and, and, and by, with low rates, and that does cause future problems. But other things can cause financial crisis. You know, before there ever was a Fed, we had intermittent financial crisis. I agree. People lose, lose, lose faith. But if you, you know, the great thing about a central bank is they have a money tree. And so they, they can always buy up bad assets and they, so, so they can calm things down. But when, once they've calmed things down, once they've dealt with a crisis, then maybe you need a little fiscal policy to tweak things a little bit in terms of spending if there's not enough spending. But generally, they should try to get interest rates back to a normal level so people are making good long-term investments you know, based on a real couple what is of normal, capital. What is normal, Mead? Are, we, are rates appropriate today or are they too restrictive? They're a little too high. Uh, I, and I think the problem is they're a little too high because we're, we're coming off a cold, we're coming a cold turkey off a period where they were way too low. In the long run, they're actually not very far off. In the long run, I'd expect you know two percent inflation, maybe a four percent federal funds rate, maybe a five percent ten-year treasury. There's nothing wrong with that. That that would be okay. It's just hard to superimpose that on an economy that spent 15 years with zero percent or close to zero percent interest rates, and and that's too much of a cold turkey right now. So I think you you need to have lower rates in the interim, but eventually you should just try to get back to a reasonable positive return on saving a greater positive return. Can we talk about, can we talk about uh, 2024? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I want to reference one of your colleagues. I like I like Dubravko Lakos a lot. He comes on my TV show mm -hmm. on CNBC. Mm -hmm. I think he's terrific. I know you don't like him, but I want to tell <laughs> you something that he said yesterday and uh, just figured I'd get your take on it uh, because his outlook is the grimmest on Wall Street, is according to Bloomberg looking for negative 8% in the S&P 500 for 2024, um, set to drop to 4,200 by the end of the year. Uh, global growth decelerates, household savings shrink, geopolitical risks remain high with national elections, including those in the U.S. that will add volatility. You could say that every year, but okay. Uh, they're not calling for a catastrophe on that team, but there is certainly calling for this to be an aberrant year. Most years, the market does not do that. So what are your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, f first of all, I, I, I like and respect all my colleagues. I know in, that. In I'm just teasing. I know. I'm just putting it on the record. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, I, don't have to, I don't have to do that job. It's uh, one of the things that I, I, I strongly believe in is talking to people about what they can on average get from the stock market rather than trying to give a, a, a projection in the short run. That's kind of like what we do as financial advisors. Well, well yeah. And same, that's what, same, that's what you know, give people what they need rather than what they want. People want to know where the market's going to be in three months. Just we don't happen to know that. Um, you know, I think there are things that could go wrong. I am, you know, obviously there's a lot of political instability and uncertainty, but I think um, in general, what I see right now is the economy tracing out a soft landing. 
you know, I can see inflation coming down. I can see enough consumer momentum to keep us from going into recession. The global economy is pretty slow. We could get hit by some shock, of course, but I can't foresee that. That could shock. always happen. Well, exactly. The whole point Any is year. that what you know, what I think we know is that the economy actually does very well with the problem it sees coming. Where it has a problem is when something comes, hits it from around, from left field. But by definition, we can't predict that. Yeah. So I am more optimistic than that. I, I, uh, I you know, long term optimistic. I think that there are, you know, there are political risk, geopolitical risk. But at the moment, I think the setup in the economy is pretty good. And if I'm right about inflation returning to where it was 10 years ago, I think that supports both the stock and bond markets. Uh, we also have some strategists out there who are very optimistic. Uh, our friend Savita Supermanian at Bank of America, uh, Deutsche Bank, they're now all talking about S&P 5000, which is, you know, based on historical average annual returns, very reasonable. Costin at Goldman Sachs thinks we'll uh, get close to the, the previous high. Mike Wilson, who's been bearish for a while, is now constructive, 4,500 uh, for next year. So you guys are on on that particular team. Um, I think we should, uh, let's throw this up really quickly just to set the, the stage. We have this chart. So look, this is an art. It's not a science. Mm -hmm. We all know. Um, but this is where your range of targets are. I guess it's just like a more, in general, a more optimistic tone overall. It's not screamingly optimistic. It's not euphoric. I think that's like my big takeaway. This just looks like an average year, what people are predicting. Well, that would be the best that, that would be the best forecast. I mean, to me, to try to predict the market at the end of any given year is trying to predict how much how many inches of snowfall you're going to get in Central Park. Yeah. You, can, you can probably predict there'll be some snow. You just don't know what day it's going to going to fall on or, yeah. or exactly how if much. You say five to ten percent though, nobody gets mad. <laughs> no matter what it does. But it's a, it's also it, it you know, first of all, it's not going to be five to ten percent year after year. It's, it's either higher or lower, That's almost right. always. Uh, but it's it's not a bad basis from which to build an investment strategy. Uh, you know, I think we're in an unusual situation in that, you know, for years and years and years, I would have said, be overweight stocks because bonds are just not paying you an income. Uh, now, we've had a bit of a rally in the bond market right now, but I think you could still say right now that bonds are pretty close to fair value. You can act, you're actually getting paid a reasonable amount for right now. So I'd, I'd say be pretty balanced I would. I still think there's an opportunity in international. I know everybody hates me for saying that because it's been someday. a very long time. Well, someday, it's, someday. but it's. Uh, <laughs> but the, but as the dollar resumes its decline, I think that will help international do better. Uh, but overall, I you know I do think that people have a reason to be optimistic. I mean, you know, people always talk about rising tensions. I actually see some fading tensions. It, it seems to me to be clear that, for example, President Xi really would rather not get into a conflict with the United States. He's got enough on his plate. So if we can avoid a conflict with China, that's a big positive. We had a lot of, as, as we, you know, we talked before, beforehand, we had a, a fair amount of industrial action earlier on this year with the UAW strike, the writer strike, and the actor strike. They're all back at work. Uh, there will be some other Yeah, strikes. we went through that already. Uh, we, we've had, yeah. we, were, we had a worry about the debt ceiling. Well, they passed a bill to extend the debt ceiling. We worried about a government shutdown. Well, that went away too. So there are some areas where actually, you know, tensions are fading, but nobody ever talks about that, even well, though that's actually very with, important with, in building with, the market. With all respect, I agree with most of what you said, but I will see your writer's strike being resolved and I will raise you the 2024 presidential election. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, that's the big one to me. Yeah. And not that it's had a huge impact on stock market in the past. In 2020, it didn't matter because it was a bigger story. 
2016 was actually a positive catalyst when it ended. But so, this is like a big one. So we don't know? know what's coming, but what's here today is pretty remarkable. Liz, Liz Young tweeted, um, a diffusion index of what the NBER tracks to declare recession is at the lowest level since October 2020. Risks are out there for sure, but this data set doesn't smell anything scary at present. Mm -hmm. So we spoke about a top quartile uh, market or economy and a bottom decile uh, attitude towards yep. it. These are, not to dismiss, there are obviously people that are hurting. Of course, there always are. But, but in aggregate, it's yep. hard to dispute the data. Yes, that's right. I mean, and, and in fact, they're, they're, one of the problems also is this, this has been a very unusual economy in the post-COVID era. So things like the yield curve have been screaming recession for a long time. Turns out it was wrong. Um, also, the index of leading economic indicators has been screaming Forever. recession for a long time. Yeah. But if you actually look at the mechanisms by or the reasons why they do say recession, you realize, wait, this is not going to work. This old measure doesn't work on the economy in 2023. And I think that's what we've discovered. This there year. are examples throughout history of measures that used to be the end-all be-all that ultimately just got thrown out, mm -hmm. like just got left by the wayside of economic history. Yeah. It is conceivable that some of the things we thought were really important turn out to just be uh, now a false alarm because the economy has changed. Well, stocks used to yield more than bonds forever. And mm -hmm. then one day in 1955 or whenever it was, that relationship flipped and it hasn't looked back. Yeah. And everybody was saying the stock market was expensive because when those yields converge, stocks always fell. And sometimes things change, and sometimes they change oh, yeah. forever. Yeah. Uh, Magnificent Seven. This is, to me, probably a top three story of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, number one stock market story of the year. Number yeah. one stock market story of the year. This is the com you know the comment that I made earlier, that, like, did AI save the stock market? I I'm pretty sure that maybe it didn't save the stock market. Maybe we would have been up anyway because of how much we were down last year. I don't think you would have had the NASDAQ up 50%, though. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, no, that that's true, but uh, true. But I wonder if people would just have got excited about something else. I mean, uh, you know, it's, of course, we like that's the beauty of counterfactuals. We we won't know. Uh, this is you. Can I quote you? It's cool. Yes, sure. Okay. Um, I won't try to do your accent. Where are you from, Jersey? <laughs> the magnificent South Dublin. Okay, the magnificent seven is up over seventy percent this year and accounts for ninety four percent of S and P five hundred year to date returns. The sudden progression of AI into mainstream culture has not only inspired excitement about sophistication, blah, blah, blah. 35% uh, of S&P 500 companies mentioning AI yep. in Q3 2023 earnings transcripts and global private investment projected to reach $200 billion. Okay. So the VCs are investing. The publicly traded CEOs can't stop talking about AI. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an AI strategy, yep. you might as well not even be on the conference. It's like having a blockchain strategy in 2017. You have to say the word AI or else you get fired. So, but there's more though. There's yeah. more to it. There's actual spending. Absolutely. Okay. And and I think, that, I mean, there's a very big difference between this and blockchain. I Agreed. Mean, I, I've, I, I was always having a really hard time. I still have a really hard time in understanding the scope of uses of blockchain I'll explain technology. it to you later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still don't. I mean, I, I crypto, I, cryptocurrencies, I think, are nonsense. But even the use of blockchain technology outside of that, it's, it's, it's cool, but it's, it's not overpowering. But the thing about AI is it's a very natural evolutionary technology. You can sort of, you can, you know, even if you got, you start with a small business, a little, you add a little bit of AI, you can see how you can make things more productive. And what we have in the, throughout the developed world right now are really tight labor markets. And so that is the perfect environment in, for, in, in which AI can flourish. Um, so you can, and as you go through industry by industry, job by job, role by role, you can see how it can add to Because it's answering a need today. 
Uh, absolutely. Okay, uh, I uh, see that. Absolutely. And, and now some of it will not show up in actual productivity. We're just going to do the job better. We'll never, we'll never actually record that fact. Uh, but I do think that it's going to have a, a huge impact on society, on economic growth to, uh, to a smaller extent. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is justifiably the, the, the biggest story of 2023. David, you made a chart. So when you were uh, doing that study about the Mag 7, uh, mm-hmm. that was quaint. They were up 72% year yep. to date. So we recreated that. And uh, that was a month ago. And November yep. was a pretty strong month. So the Mag 7 are now up 100%. Next chart, please. 105% actually year to date. Yep. The rest of the S&P 500 is up 7%, which, yep. listen, I'll take it. Up 7%. It's not a terrible year. It's just It just pales and in most, comparison. And most investors own these stocks. Yeah. Most uh, well, how, how are not av- like. How can you avoid them? You can't. You can't avoid <laughs> but, them. But it's you know a lot of people say am I might not worried that 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 the market is so narrow. And I say, no. I mean, what what that tells you is that in the United States and actually around the world, there are plenty of cheap stocks still. If if we're right on inflation coming down and therefore interest rates coming down, then not only does you know most of the S and P five hundred look like very fair value here, but that's also true of uh, stocks in Europe, stocks in Japan. Um, you know stocks in plenty of emerging markets. So there's uh, there are lots of opportunities out there. And, and you know, maybe the next leg isn't about the Magnificent Seven, but there, there's plenty of opportunity. The fantasy of the stock picking asset manager is that, tw- like a year like 2024, the Mag 7 reverse, they mm-hmm. bleed market cap, and the other 493 S&P names have a rally. But you know, you know what? It you could know, happen. It's, Guess what? It just it, did happen. It happened in 2022. Literally. Well, yeah, but the point is, and that's exactly the point, is, is in 2022, you have a closing of the gap, but you had a closing of the gap when everybody gets scared. Yes. Yeah. That's the problem. That, that you know, a, a sort of a bubble of euphoria, it, you know, so long as people are feeling good, I expect that, that dispersion of valuations will probably continue. It's when people get really scared and say, what earth do I own here? <laughs> that that uh, that the things that are the most lunatic in terms of pricing, they get hit, and that's how these gaps tend to close. So, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily praying for a closing of the gap because I think I know what sort of environment that's going to occur. So people talk about the the 105 percent return as I just mentioned, but it just so happens, and this is a big reason why strategists were understandably so bearish heading into 2023. The Magnificent Seven had a 48 percent drawdown. In 2022, Amazon fell 56%. Meta fell 76%. Uh, Google fell 44%. And uh, Facebook fell 66%. Maybe I said mm-hmm. that wrong, but That's something meta. like that. Uh, so going into December 2022, 20, uh, the Magnificent Seven were in a 48% drawdown. Mm-hmm. So if you look over that two-year period, if you look over the two-year period, they're barely beating the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. It's just that where you started from matters a lot. That is a great chart, by the way. <laughs> I think that's a we may steal that chart. You could license that. Well, here, here, here's one more. I want to talk about the understandable worry um, about concentration. So mm-hmm. I made a chart looking at the rolling 12 month return for the S and P 500 minus the S and P 500 equal weight. And the S&P 500 has outperformed by 14% over the last 12 months. And if you look at other periods of time where this happened, Mm -hmm. not so great. 1973, 1990, 1999. Pretty substantial tops. And we know what happened. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen this time um, because things change and certainly things are different. But this has not historically been a wonderful thing. Well, 
That's that's right. Uh, but if you look at, let's look at some pieces pieces of this. So first of all, 1999, the problem was that not only did you have a you know, uh, extreme market concentration in in large cap tech, but you had a huge wave of enthusiastic investment spending. So there was an economic effect also. It wasn't just a market bubble. There was an economic bubble, uh, which got reversed right after Y2K, uh, which caused problems. Um, you know, if, uh, I have to, I'll have to think a little bit back to, to 73 or, or to, to uh, 1990. But, uh, you know, I... I w- I'm not necessarily willing to throw in the towel on the economy or, or, or on the economy because of this. I do think that, as I said, the dispersion will probably dissipate in a bear market rather than a bull market. Um, but if you're a long-term investor, you know, buy good companies. I agree with that. I would just so, but I was so I was looking at the data last night um, when the S and P 500 outperformed by 14 percent over the previous 12 months, which is where it is right yeah. now. That's only happened 1.5 percent of the time. So. Take this definitely with a grain of salt. It's rare. It's rare. It doesn't happen a lot. The average return one year later for the S&P 500 was negative 1.2%. And we know the average return is, you know, whatever, 10, 11, year over year. And it was only positive. Well, not only. It was positive 49% of the time, which is substantially lower than the 75% of the time normally. So historically, this has not been great. You know, if if, if we were three statisticians <laughs> and we we're looking at those numbers, we'd, yeah, we, we'd probably say case not proven. Case not proven. Yeah. I, agree. I agree. We have we have we have four samples. Not good enough. How many? No, want? no. <laughs> uh, you need thirty for a T statistic to, to even mean I, something. I wish we had uh, fifty decades, uh, fifty centuries to go through. Well, exactly, that's we, we don't. And, th- and that's actually one of the problems of financial markets. You never have enough cases of something being exactly the same. We've seen this before. It's always different, and so you yeah. have to. You can never say it's a no-brainer because it's not. That's why we all do rolling, uh, rolling periods. That way, we have we can yeah. exponentially uh, multiply so, how but, many. But here's here's a potential risk in what's happening. So Goldman Sachs put out put out a report, concentration, crowding, and turnover is what they call it, and they say concentration within the typical hedge fund portfolio and crowding across fund portfolios, both increased during the most recent quarter. The typical hedge fund holds seventy percent of its long portfolio in its top ten positions matching the highest concentration on record outside of 2018. And I think they talk about the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, here, the, here it goes. Uh, funds bought mega cap tech during the quarter, lifting the exposure to the Magnificent Seven to a new high. The mega cap tech stocks account for 13% of the aggregate hedge fund long portfolio, twice their weight at the start of 2023. So these are some of the charts. Yeah. I think that's potentially some of the worrisome is that people are crowding in now. And these are yeah, big index, it, and they're big index weights. These are the stocks that really matter. It, it means yes, of course, but it, and it means that some investors are, you know, badly positioned in terms of valuations. Uh, and as I said, the the, the gap usually closes uh, in a bear market. But when I look at the market overall, is it expensive? No. So you know, you know, maybe you have a period where this this continues for a while, uh, and in the long run, however, it sorts itself out. You know, the, the, we're not at expensive valuations right now. And that's a big difference, for example, back to 2000. You know, you, you, you pointed out earlier, you had, you know, at the end of 1999, we had a very expensive stock market given the underlying inflation and interest rate dynamics. If we're headed back- Yeah, like a 36 PE on the S&P, 90 on the NASDAQ. But, but, but more than yeah. that, it was in an economy which had genuinely higher inflation and interest rates than, than I think we're going to see- unfolds going forward. You had a Y2K so, spending bubble too. You had a lot of weird things going on then too. Yeah, but it, but it's it's really the valuation. The overall valuations don't look expensive. Let's, so let's talk Let's talk about that. I agree. When you look at, you look at a lot of uh, large market cap, fairly well-known stocks, just not the MAG7. Yeah. 
you are not regularly encountering stocks trading at 30 times earnings. You no, just aren't. There are a lot of, there are the a lot of big, is, cheap companies out there. The thing is, that really hasn't helped. Uh, John, let's let's do this Russell 3000 growth versus value. So Charlie Grant wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal. The stocks that AI mania left behind. Nope. Previous chart, please. Uh, yeah, one one prior to this, the, the Wall Street Journal's chart. So on the value side, so uh, here. This year, large companies in both indices explain the gap. The 10 biggest companies in the Russell Growth Index uh, gained an average of 90% this year, obviously NVIDIA, et cetera. And then the 10 largest value stocks, six of them are down about 20%. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or so, so Chevron, Bank of America, Merck, J&J, &J, everyone knows the names. This disparity seems like, you're talking about unsustainable. Yeah. This seems really unsustainable but it always seems like that and it never changes. What like what what is all of a sudden going to happen that's going to change this dynamic and shrink that gap? But John, chart chart back on please. So if you if you zoom out a little bit, so this is over the full 2 year period. Yeah, I'm so, talking like now. <laughs> but if you but go back not one year, go back 2 years. Growth got annihilated in yeah. 2022. Yeah. Annihilated and now it caught up. So it if you're a value manager, you get to outperform one every ten years. Is that the <laughs> no, that no? The it's 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 gonna it, it should be better than that. You can have these long periods of you know it's like the rising dollar. The dollar went up and up and up, and it's overvalued. Nobody, everybody knows it's overvalued. It's been overvalued for a long time. But what's going to cause it to turn? Uh, you know, you actually need a few things to trigger a turn, and then people to believe in it. And the, what's going on right now, I think, is a lot of people are simply buying the growth stocks. Yeah, it's not it's not a logical thought process. It's not I'm going to sit down with my spreadsheets and try and figure out what the real cash flows here are. It's growth's going to go up and value is going to get trashed. So this is what I'm going to do. And it's it'll work. career. It's survival. Yeah, well, exactly. But the, but it gets more and more illogical. And then what you eventually you end up where the valuations are so out of skew that if something begins to tip this, then it can sort of build in itself. I mean, the, the thing I remember about you know, 1999 was much more what happened in 2000 when you look uh, look at just how far the Nasdaq fell. Now, um, now again, I'm not predicting a bear market like that, but uh, but the, these valuation gaps will close, and the bigger the gap, eventually, the more violently they'll close. I don't disagree with you, but it does it does feel like we're still relatively early in the AI hype cycle. Like Nvidia's revenue, it I think it grew 100 percent uh, year over year, 35 percent quarter over quarter, something like that. Like that stuff is only starting to just ramp up. Well, yes, but uh, the other thing, you know, I th we are early, we're very early in this industry. And, and one of the issues is going to be, yes, you're going to get great, great overall revenue growth. But, uh, but what are your costs doing? And, you know, how much actual profit to shareholders are you going to be able to generate? And once you've done that, are you going to be able to build a fence around your, your, your cash flow so no, nobody else can, uh, can, can sort of steal your lunch here? And I will say that there are a number of tech companies which over the years have done a remarkable job of building a monopoly position where maybe there shouldn't have been a monopoly position. And maybe there, maybe there are companies in the AI space that can do that too. But they're sure not all going to be winners. You know, most of the dot-com bubble stocks were, you know, horrible losers in the end. So it, it's, it's a tricky business. You're going to have to figure out yes, which companies are really going to be able to, you're going to be able to look back 10 years from now and say, that was a really well-managed company the whole way through, and, and it just it's was, just a I was going to say, I was going to say, like uh, the history suggests, you're not going to have five monopolies because yeah. that's not a monopoly anymore. Ex exactly. Okay. Uh, Rich Bernstein agrees with what you're saying. 
his his comment this week and his research, there are more than just seven great investing opportunities in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's pop this chart, John. So he says the Magnificent Seven have dominated indices to the point that some large cap growth funds no longer even qualify as diversified portfolios That's under wild. the 1940 Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the narrowest leadership since the technology bubble. And the chart that we have on screen now is the percentage of stocks that outperform the index. And it looks like just 25% or so mm-hmm. of S&P components but, did better than, if, than the index. But if you look at your chart... Look at look at 1998 and 1999. Same, same dynamic. And see what happened in 2000, 2001, 2000. So you yeah, be that careful. Snap. Be, be careful what you wish for. Exactly. Be but that was a cash for. down, though. 2000. That, and that's exactly the point. But what's, that, what's interesting is that the the divergences are noteworthy when the rest of the market is rolling over. If the other four 93 were rolling over and it was just the seven that were holding everything up. That's not the case. Yeah, the 493 are lagging, but the other 493 are still up 7%. So it's not as if the market's rolling over and only a few stocks are holding it up. That's not the case right now. Well, that's right. But if you're a long-term investor, just you know, don't buy the overvalue. Well, none of this shit matters if you're a long-term investor. We're just having fun. <laughs> uh, global, global bonds ripping. Uh, this is Bloomberg. Global bonds are soaring at the fastest pace since the 2008 financial crisis, but they're not soaring because everybody's looking for safety which is what what went mm-hmm. on then. They're soaring because inflation is moderating right. at, at a faster pace than maybe a lot of people thought, and it's a readjustment. It's, this is a good story, is my point. I, I, absolutely. I, okay. I, you know, it's not just in the United States. I think I think inflation is going to be stickier in the UK and in Europe than it is in the United States. But even, even there, you can see inflation coming down. I think people are, are beginning to get the memo that this is not the 1970s all over again. And... You know that that's and that's you know I think part of the reason why the other four hundred ninety four stocks or four hundred ninety three stocks are um, doing reasonably well because it, it is generally a good story for the stock market, but it also is a good story for the bond Can market. Can I play something for you? Sure. Some people say that the Fed, if they were to cut interest rates next year, would help the Democrats and therefore be seen as very political. On the other hand, some people say the Fed can't wait till after the election because the economy might need a, a stimulus. So, you have a view on what the Fed's likely to do? I think they're going to cut rates, and uh, you know, I think they're going to cut rates sooner than people expect, uh, because you know what's happening is the real rate of interest, ultimately, which is what impacts the economy, keeps increasing as inflation declines. Right. So if the Fed keeps rates in the sort of middle fives, uh, and inflation is you know trending below three percent, or uh, you know that's a very high real rate of interest. So that is Bill Ackman being interviewed by Travis Kelsey. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Do you do you think that that's now the reasonable uh, consensus that we should kind of all get start thinking about that uh, the cuts are going to happen maybe a little bit faster than we would have thought three months ago? You know, I have I have a friend who is perennially late, and you know they're going to be late, okay. and no matter whatever they Me say, too. they're yeah. going to be late. You know what? The Fed <laughs> is always late. The Fed is the Fed's. I know Jay Powell a few months ago said that you know if the economy is doing fine, but inflation is heading back towards two percent, uh, we'll cut. But I bet they stall and and prevaricate and just so wait and wait. Slow and to hike, they'll be slow to exactly. Cut. So you know, I, I'll build in. You know, I've, I I do think that we'll get a rate cut next December. We might get something before then, but I, I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for the Fed to to cut appropriately. 
Um, and, and that's okay. I, I, you know, at this stage, they, they, they would uh, probably confuse people too much if they started cutting aggressively. Dave, if there was, if there was a pie chart and there was two slices of the pie for, to explain the stock market's rise in 2023, and the two slices were inflation coming down and the other slice of the pie was the market looking forward to cuts in 2024, how big is each slice? Oh, I think the inflation is a much bigger, a much, yeah. much bigger slice because because inflation coming down doesn't just give you a few rate cuts in twenty twenty four. It gives you a platform over the next decade in which inflation isn't higher than it was in the last decade. I mean, that's a really important point. You know, if inflation comes down to three and sticks at three, then we've got a higher inflation environment. We need to have higher interest rates. If inflation comes down to two or below two, then, hey, we're just back to where we were, in which case the Fed can be easy and in the long run. That allows for lower long-term rates. So I'm much more interested in what inflation means for long-term rates than just how quickly the Fed, the, the penny the drops higher the for Fed. longer camp thinks that geopolitical tensions and onshoring and things that are different from last decade's dynamic will keep inflation high. If you talk to people in California, they think they're like, what are you talking about? AI is going to eliminate like half these people's jobs, this is the most disinflationary wave of technology we've seen yet. It's the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but it's like I feel like it's really hard to not pick a side right now. I don't know what. what, what uh, do you you think? know, I'll, I'll pick the disinflation side, but not 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 really because of. First of all, I don't think that that nearshoring or onshoring is really a, a very significant part of the inflation story at all. Uh, and I don't think the geopolitical what, tensions, su supply chains, just costing more because the, the, the we're, supply, we're making the, them domestic. The supply, global supply chains have basically come back into balance anyway. And if and if we import stuff from Mexico as opposed to China, eh, it's not going to make that okay. much difference to our, to our inflation story. Um, so th that that's part of it. Um, and then on AI. And inflation, I don't expect it to cause mass layoffs. Every leap forward in technology that we've ever seen since the Industrial Revolution, we all want to buy more stuff or buy more services or whatever. If you've got enough demand, you'll have full employment. But what it does do is it makes us easier to discover the best deal. I mean, right now, I have to go on Travelocity and search around for, you know, for the best flight. And maybe I'll find a better, better rate. But it's a little work. If I can tell my AI yeah, assistant here. Microsoft Copilot. Exactly. Find me just, the best, just, find me just the best get me, me the cheapest. Where can I find the cheapest gas? I, you know, it, 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 whatever makes it easier for a buyer to get that information. You're going to be on Spirit Airlines. There's going to be a guy in front of you <laughs> vomiting, literally. Projectile vomiting. You'll, well, have, uh, inf you'll have infants it, behind but, you but, but, and see, somebody then, with a the, chicken the next, the next, next to you. The next generation of AI will know what airline you don't want to fly on. Right. So, uh, right. And don't put me near a bathroom. I have like a lot of David, conditions. David, I, th I, think, I think your intuition about inflation versus the market looking forward to cuts in 2024 20, is right. One of my big things is that even if you knew, A, the news of next year, or B, even if you were to be given some like actual variables, you probably still wouldn't have a great confidence in guessing what the market would do. Mm -hmm. However, inflation is one of those things that actually matters a lot. Yep. So I looked at what happens to the stock market a year forward if inflation was higher than it was a year ago or lower than it mm -hmm. was a year ago. And the, the gap was much wider than I suspected. Yep. If inflation was higher than it was a year ago, the average stock market return was 6%. And if it was lower than it was a year ago, the average market return was like 12%. Yep. And the distribution of returns looks very similar. The only difference is that a lot of the left tail of negative returns gets cut off when inflation is going down year over year. Mm -hmm. So it's not guaranteed, but it's a pretty good indicator. Well, yeah, because it says that it, it, you can have lower long-term interest rates. And when you can have lower long-term interest rates, you can have a lower earnings yield on stocks, which means a higher PE ratio. And if we live in a world of low inflation, then asset prices can be high. Um, 
we're going to hit you with a couple of more things. We're going to let you get out of here. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time, but uh, this is just so amazing having you here, and uh, I don't want to miss the opportunity. Uh, a lot of people are now talking about there being a private credit bubble. Anecdotally, I was at a CNBC delivering Alpha. These private credit guys were walking around like like uh, like 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 they own the joint. They, they star pra- belly snitches, and they practically did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like this is like the hot asset class. Wealth managers love talking about private credit to their clients because they appear more sophisticated. Um, According th- to my inbox, there's a bubble. Yeah. Well, so maybe there isn't. This is the chairman of UBS, uh, Com Kelleher, who Irish. It yes. Sounds like it. Sounds, yes. Sure, sounds like it. Uh, warned against growing risks in private credit as the market continues to boom. Quote, there is clearly an asset bubble going on in private credit. Uh, he said this at the FT Global Banking Summit on Tuesday. There are many other asset bubbles building. What it needs is just one thing to trigger. Uh, he calls it a fiduciary crisis. Um, this is now a $1.6 trillion industry. We've seen this movie before. You get an area of the market where a lot of loans are being made that's not a traditional bank. You find out later that a lot of people are involved that you didn't know were involved. You find out that there's a domino effect because of the way that some of these assets are being used to collateralize other assets. Uh, Is it chicken little to say this is the next market event or do we not know enough yet or are the fears overblown or what, what do you think? What do you think generally about the topic? Well, I think, I think it's right to be fearful about this. Uh, The, the problem in the thing that I always worry about when it comes to sort of credit issues is, is the market rewarding the most reckless? Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you lend, uh, if you'll make the loan that a more prudent person wouldn't, if you get all the business because of that and you, you, and you grow your business because of that, then you can- you That can, is the story of private credit. Well, that's-, that's, they're, saying that's the, the, they're saying the banks are on the sideline. They will not make these loans. We will. And we have plenty of collateral. Uh, but, we have all, all, all and, this money and there, behind and, us. Now, I should say that there is probably more space for rational- private credit loans today than there would have been before the, the regulation that followed the great financial crisis. Uh, but still, I, I do worry about it. You know, the longer it goes on, the, the, the bigger the, the, um, the, the risk. Does it amount to a systematic threat to the global economy? Not like the global financial crisis. Subprime was only $200 billion and the number was scoffed at. Like, how could that really... But it's not that subprime itself; it's everything that was stacked all, on top of it. All the derivatives built on, on top of it, and the amount, sh- uh, but John, also also the amount of leverage that those institutions were using. Just, this is this is the blue is the value of current global private credit assets under management, which you can see doesn't look like a bubble. Uh, and the black is unused capital. Uh, so uh, just on the surface, one point six trillion. But like, let's humor me. Ten years ago, under five hundred million. But wait a minute. So it's a so we were talking to I was talking uh, to, under five hundred billion. I was talking to Cam Harvey uh, before we started recording about private credit, and he I don't put words in his mouth, but he doesn't say that he loves it. But he he likes the idea of it better than banks making these loans. So banks are stepping away from these loans for regulatory purposes. They're not making these loans anymore. So there's a better asset liability match on yeah. that end. And he's like, who would you rather be making these loans and giving oh, yeah. these term sheets? I would agree with that. Uh, a random bank or Apollo? Who do you think is like being more stringent? Who's more systemically, who's more systemically well, important? Well, but also who's who's putting together more stringent term sheets? Well, that I'm not certain that, I'm, I'm not gonna 
I'm not so sure that all that these loans are that pristine. In fact, I think they're quite the opposite in in many cases. But the re- but from my perspective, as a, as a sort of a, a strategist and investor, the real question is: Is this a systematic risk that could you know have such financial repercussions as to sink the economy and therefore affect, affect markets overall? I, d- I don't think so. I don't think okay. I don't think that's where we are. So right I now. think I think that there could be some poor outcomes maybe for investors. Yes, but not necessarily like a something to. And, and the other thing is, you know, we because of the great financial crisis, you know, the great financial crisis didn't have to happen uh, because even, you know, as it was unfolding around us, if, if, this, if the authorities had made decisions which they ultimately made at the outset, we wouldn't have had the crisis. You know, uh, and, and so what you saw with the, the uh, you know, the mini banking crisis we had um, earlier on this year is just how quickly the Fed and Treasury uh, and, and the government moved in to try to squash this thing out and, and to make sure that we didn't have a we did domino it a week, effect. We did it in a weekend. So, so they said, so yeah. they, yeah. they, they spend their, lo- they spend their, uh, a lot more time looking at dominoes than they ever did before. And I think that, I think that does give us a measure of protection from a macro systematic perspective. Nobody wants to preside over GFC two. Therefore we're reacting quicker. Yes. I, think it's, I think it's a great place to leave it. Did you have fun on the show today? I certainly do. You did? Okay. So this is the, uh, the intermission. And then we're going to do another hour and a half, and we're going to let you. Uh, we always end the show every week, uh, David, with favorites. And we try to give the listeners, the viewers, something that we're reading, we're watching, we're listening to, something that you're doing in your spare time maybe. What do you think people should know about? Well, I, I spent a lot of time running. I, I just uh, – so I just uh, – did the Philadelphia Marathon uh, did you? Like two, two weeks ago, and uh, I, I'm aging into to uh, to be actually a good runner. I'm not I'm not getting any faster, but I am getting older, and so that's the, that that is helping. So so what does that mean? Like the people that you're comparing your time with are yeah, falling apart at a faster rate. Th- that's right. It's, okay. so, now, so now I've I've, I, I've just just <laughs> gone over the the uh, age sixty bracket. Dun- so. uh, Duncan's got a runner in the family. I mean, she's not aging. She's I mean, very to a lesser young. extent, I'm yeah. also a runner, but yeah. I just not, don't not run marathons. But, uh, my wife runs marathons. But I, well, and, and my well, my two sons ran Philly with me, and we're we're all going to run uh, Boston for the Dana Farber Cancer Institute in uh, oh, that's in awesome. April. So that's that, that's really cool. Very what, cool. What's your favorite running shoe? Uh, uh, a well, they're Nike Zooms, but they actually have to be from 2020 because every year they change them just a little bit, and the 2020 ones fit me. So did you right. stock you stockpile nice. them. You bought a bunch? I, I know this website. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Michael, you have a favorite for us this week? Uh, all right. So you put that far. I was going to say that, but I'll let that fall. Take it. Okay. It's all yours. So I don't know why I skipped a few seasons. Yeah. So Fargo is on FX, but also- You ever watch the show? Also on, I watch it on Hulu. You watch Fargo? I watch it. Watch the movie. Mo- great movie. So incredibly, Fargo's in my top 10 movies. Uh, incredibly, the show is thematically very, very similar to the movie. Mm-hmm. It feels the same. It feels like the same writing, even though it's not the same writers. Uh, it feels, it just thematically, it feels very similar. And in this season, they've got John Hamm playing some sort of wackadoo sheriff. Mm-hmm. He has nipple rings, which isn't that important, but it's kind of important. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I'm only two and a half episodes in, but so far so good. And then the other one that I would like to highlight is um, Godzilla on Apple, which it's sounds, show? which sounds ridiculous. Like why would, why do we need more Godzilla? And I'm not even a huge Godzilla fan. The movies mm-hmm. feel weird to me. And I think here's why. Once you see the monster, it's sort of how much monster viewing can you do, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so it's hard in a two-hour period. It's hard to do like character development and also monster development. So it's just <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. So Apple is doing the show, which is it's got um, uh, Kurt Russell and his son are in it, 
Mm. And Kurt Russell's son is playing a, a younger version of Kurt Russell. It goes, it time travels back and forth. But there's really incredible character development and really good writing. And it's not a ton of Godzilla. It's just like very quick clips. So just the right amount. It's just said? the right amount. It's it's okay. very well done. Very well done. Very cool. I wanted to um, just mention Charlie Munger. Uh, it seems like his last interview ever. Uh, mm. So Charlie was on the Acquired podcast, which I, I feel like I'm talking about at this point every week. It's one of my favorite uh, podcasts. They got into a room with uh, with Charlie Munger a couple of weeks ago, and he did like an hour and a half. And he did yeah. like really great stories and uh, really great insights. And it's just remarkable how sharp this guy stayed for 100 years right up until the end. He, he said so many sensible you things. Ever meet, you ever meet him? Yeah. No, I never did. I no? Never okay. Um, me either. Uh, and then Becky Quick did an interview with him two weeks ago right. at his house. Mm -hmm. And it's we're recording this on Thursday. It's going to be on CNBC at 8 o'clock Thursday night. You'll wow. Be, wow. You guys will be hearing this after it aired, but I'm sure they'll air it all weekend or you could find it uh, in demand. Becky was like super plugged in with Warren and Charlie yeah. all these years. So I, I would imagine that's going to be a pretty cool uh, television I'd event. So, all right, we're going to end with that. Rest in peace, uh, Charlie Munger, what are the greats? Want to thank our special guest today. We had so much fun. Dr. David Kelly, everybody respects you. Everybody reads you. You're, you're terrific. We want you to keep going. And uh, thank you for all the insights every week. Uh, well, every time you write, I learn something new. So thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Do you want to say something nice about me? <laughs> You don't have to. I'm just going to give you space. No, no, this is a, this is a lot. Was this, was this cool? This is a lot of fun. Would you love come back? Do, I'd love to do it again. Okay, what are you so doing just, tomorrow? Just, just don't, just no, just don't remember what I said this okay, time. Okay, fair enough. No, you listen. You've it, been, it, uh, you've no. been very right. I got to tell you. All right, you've been very right. Thank All right, you. thank you so much to David Kelly, Duncan. Great job this week. John, Daniel, Nicole. Sean's in the house. Sean, welcome to New York. Rob's here. Guys, thank you for everything. To the listeners, to the viewers. Thank you for all the ratings, all the reviews. We love you. We'll see you next time. All right. Is that fun? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Thanks. It was great. You were awesome, but we knew you were there. Well, that's good. That's awesome.